Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Inside the Hive. This is your co-host, Joe Hagan. Emily Jane Fox is on assignment. And so I have the great pleasure of bringing on today Rebecca Traster, author of Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger. You can see where this is going, what we're going to be talking about this week. She's also the author of All the Single Ladies, Unmarried Women, and the Rise of an Independent Nation. She's a journalist, author, critic, and a leading feminist thinker in this country. She also happens to be somebody that I know, who I consider a friend, and somebody we can lean on to talk about and understand just what in the holy fuck is going on in the United States of America this week. I'm just going to start... Hi, Rebecca. (laughs) Welcome. Hi, Joe. (laughs) Hi, Joe. Yeah. I just want to start by reading a paragraph from your article in The Cut this week, which is on New York Magazine's website, if you want to go read that and I urge you to go read it. The uh, headline, Democratic leaders are getting the abortion story wrong again. And I'm so glad that you went directly to the politics this week, you know, in the ramifications of it, in the failures of the Democratic Party to message, because it's like something we talk about a lot on this week. But now we talk a lot about on this podcast. But let me just read this. I know you wrote it, but people need to hear it. The news of Sam Alito's draft majority opinion overturning Roe v. Wade on Monday didn't just break, it shattered. It was the unexpected timing, yes, and the unprecedented nature of the leak and the retro pig stylings of the draft's author who made ample use of the term abortionist and unctuously averred that, quote, a right to abortion is not deeply rooted in the nation's history and traditions as if any of the hard-won protections of oppressed classes were deeply rooted in this nation's history and traditions. But it was also simply the reverberations of the hammer dropping, sending the chill of undeniable reality down every spine of family and friends, and one would think the highest-ranking Democrats in Congress. And those being Schumer, Pelosi, President Biden, in their statements, they blame Trump for all of their problems, That's great. That does us a lot of good. And refuse to accurately describe or perhaps even discern the issue at hand. I'm paraphrasing. So, Rebecca, you argue that Democrats have failed. It's pretty clear, but they failed by not using the word abortion. I mean, that's one of the ways in which they've failed. That's just one, just one, a tiny preview. (laughs) Oh, boy. Yeah, Yeah. we'll we'll just start with the tip of the iceberg here. But why is that important? 
Well, because, I mean, I think this is, and, and I want to say that the critiques that I level in this piece are critiques that I've leveled over years that, lot, that other people have too, right? This is, these are longstanding errors, in my view, by democratic leadership. And, and I hope that deeper into the conversation, we can talk about the Democrats who I think have been doing it better over the years. Yeah. But the party and its leadership have made decisions over the course of decades of Roe being law, in terms of how they were going to frame and fight for abortion rights. And one of the decisions they made was not to talk about abortion. <laughs> and that, by the way, I should say, that's also a critique of the reproductive rights movement and the big sort of reproductive rights advocates over the course of decades, too. And the fact that abortion advocates chose to use the gauzy term choice over, you know, I grew up with the pro-choice movement. Right. Um, and this is something that I've been writing about for years. It is meaningless. It's it's supposed to be euphemistic. It it actually waters down everything about what this is about. You know, as reproductive justice advocates have have argued for decades, the notion of the ability for people to make choices about their reproductive life somehow not mentioning abortion, but also being only about abortion, takes away from all the other kinds of policy reforms we need to make about increasing social safety nets, affordable housing, uh, education, criminal justice reform, all the things that would make it possible for all kinds of people to make actual choices, not only about whether to carry a pregnancy or not, but whether or not it is possible and when and under what circumstance to choose to have children and raise them safely and with economic stability. Okay, so, you know, there were decades after the passage of Roe in which, like, people just weren't talking about abortion, they were talking about choice, which was essentially meaningless and also just diluted an entire conversation about gender equality. And, you know, when Sex in the City is making fun of your language, which Sex in the City famously did by having an episode about choose my choice feminism, where like any choice a woman makes is therefore feminist, you know that you may have made a rhetorical error. Okay, so then we get to the point where increasingly the people who want to ban abortion, right, this is over the course of decades, the fantasy that this is somehow the product of a Trump administration is total fiction. Over the course of decades, what you have are proliferating state restrictions on abortion. And of course, they amped up after the Tea Party, the far right segment of the Republican Party took over in 2010, claiming that they were all about tax reform policy, but actually all they did was hold like thousands of vo votes to defund Planned Parenthood, right? You know, also since the late 70s, the Hyde Amendment, which is a legislative rider that bans state insurance programs for paying for abortion, it made abortion all but inaccessible to the most vulnerable populations in this country. Poor, black, brown, indigenous, rural people often didn't have any reasonable access. They, there was, they, they couldn't use federal insurance programs to pay for abortion. So through all of this... <laughs> Abortion itself has become less and less accessible, even as Roe stands. And a Democratic Party has refused to fight vociferously to actually take the language that an anti-abortion right wing was using, the language of life and family and innocence and morality. Now, all of those things are available to anybody who cared to take on the fight for abortion rights and access, right? To talk about abortion itself, the, the right 
to end a pregnancy that is unintended or unwanted as fundamental to familial flourishing, to economic stability, to freedom for families. But Democrats chose not to head straight into that fight, to not take up that language, to not talk with energy and heart about what it means to make abortion accessible to people. And as a result, have wound up talking about choice and a woman's right to choose and these Mm -hmm. fundamental rights without really naming them, which, to get back to this week, is what Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer did in the statement they put out the night that the Alito draft leaked. They put out a statement that did not use the word abortion and that described this as now the party of Trump, which was completely ahistorical, made no sense. And which had this weird gloating line at the end that I guess was about Susan Collins about how Republican senators are going to have to explain why they voted for the Supreme Mm -hmm. Court justices, which, okay, sure. Also, they're never going to explain it. Also, why is that your emphasis on the night that you have a country terrified and shocked and confused because there's not a precedent for this kind of leaked opinion, this leaked draft? You have patients who have appointments, presumably the next morning, who don't know what's going on. Are their abortions now illegal? Are they still going to be able to get the care they need? And there was no sign in that statement that the leaders of the party in the House and the Senate were even aware of what the moral crisis was, what the medical crisis was for millions of people across the country when this historic, unprecedented leak had happened. Nobody knew what was happening, and and their statement didn't even say, you can go to your appointments tomorrow morning. Joe Biden didn't give a statement until the next morning. Right. Well, and first of all, let's back up a minute. When Ruth Bader Ginsburg died in 2020, the writing was on the wall. We had, that was the first, you know, mini freak out that people had. And then mm-hmm. they installed this sort of moon-eyed Christian fanatic in there. That, but then that writing was on the wall. And since then, they've been asleep at the wheel and they had all the power. <laughs> you it know? Has, wait, I want to I push back at that and say they have been asleep at the wheel for far longer than that. And it's not right. even – yes – Anybody watching could have seen over these decades the way that the right was actually strategizing politically, brilliantly, taking over patiently, right, on many levels, taking over state legislatures, school boards, while the Democrats were constantly fighting on a federal level, while the right was taking over the states. And when they got control of the states, passing these incredibly restrictive and onerous regulations on abortion care, the right was also feeding a court system, feeding the judicial system building a lab in which to make, you know, anti-abortion judges, the Federalist Society. So, and then manipulating every system available in American democracy to ensure that Republican presidents who had fewer votes, who, who had minority power, right, more Americans voted for their opponents than for them, and George Bush and, and Donald Trump, that they nonetheless were able to ascend to the White House, thanks to the Electoral College, um, and when there, appointed a majority of justices who'd been grown in the Federal Society lab to the court. So that we now have a judiciary branch that is run by justices appointed by presidents who won a minority of voters, and meanwhile, a A judicial pick was stolen from Barack Obama, just outright stolen by Mitch McConnell from Barack Obama, a president who had, in fact, been 
made president by the majority of American voters. Okay, so all of that has been going on over decades. And then even before the acute crisis, which you, you know, you name it as the moment that RBG died, I would say that it was, I mean, the the moments that I knew this was happening, like where the crushing reality hit me and my heart started to beat fast and I had the physiological understanding of what was about to happen regarding far more than abortion, but also abortion was election night 2016. That's when it should have been clear to everybody. Again, I remember being on a plane when I read that Anthony Kennedy was retiring. That was another moment where it hit me in full. The confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh was another moment. And then, yes, the death of RBG. There was a lot of time to prepare for this, a lot of sure. time to prepare for this, a lot of time to think more clearly. And, and, and Democratic leadership during the confirmation hearings of Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett were very clear that they were not going to fight this about abortion, right? They were going to make the fights different. Now, there were Democratic senators who, and there, there always have been Democrats who were much more willing to have the more visceral, passionate, morally compelling fight that centered abortion and and the human beings who need it, right? Need to avail themselves of it and the kind of impact on family and and lives that banning abortion has. There have always been politicians who did that. And and I, I noticed that amping up coming from certain senators during the Barrett confirmation hearings, Kavanaugh, who were willing to get on television and say, wait, this is in part about abortion. But leadership was not eager to make that fight about that. In fact, Democratic leadership, and you know, Joe, you and I have have lived through this same Democratic Party, have been telling us for years, we need to have a bigger tent on abortion. We can't make it a litmus test. And in fact, the you know, election and continued power of a lot of anti-abortion Democrats, including Henry Cuellar in Texas, who is currently being primaried by Jessica Cisneros. He's a congressman in Texas, an incumbent, and Democratic leadership is still supporting his incumbency this week. So the message that the party has been sending is that this is not something to have an open and passionate fight about, right? They're sending that message this week. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. The Democrats have completely failed to talk to people about what the ramifications are. I mean, you talk about, and you just said it eloquently, but you wrote it eloquently too this week, that the lies built around the fetus are easily disproved. No party that actually valued the fetus and the culture of life, family, and innocence they claimed he embodied, the fetus embodied, would also starve real live children of food, housing, health care, and education. They haven't connected any of this. And they avoid it. They tiptoe around it. Meanwhile, the Republican, for many decades, as you point out, um, marketing geniuses call it pro-life. And then, you know, people are like, life, I like life. Okay, good. Well, see, and then you go into the stall, right? So uh, let's just talk about what it means over the decades in terms of what the church, you write in in your piece, 
if it's gutted and gone, it's, it looks like a fait accompli at this point in, in some version. Either way, yes. It's, and, yeah. but which, is, which, by the way, we have known. We have known since Barrett was confirmed to the court and that the Mississippi law got amped up to be an actual yeah. um, reversal situation or overturn situation, right? Yeah. We have known since the oral arguments and just listening to how the justices responded that Roe was about to functionally cease to offer any protection has been understood for months at this point. Yeah. But let's look, you know, the Times had a piece this week about the polling. And they broke it down and, you know, there's the national polling numbers, which look positive for people that are, you know, pro, uh, what do you want to call it? What are we going to call it? What, how do we talk about it then? You know, I mean, that's where we're at. You know, we keep saying pro-choice. No, no, well, you, I mean, look, pro-choice has a conversational meaning. I find myself using it even though I can't stand the language. Okay. Like it's, it's just been right. It has a, it has a meaning. It's not, you know, it's, it's bad language, but I would be lying if I said I didn't find myself saying it. But so the people who want abortion to remain legal yeah, is so the key. Mo- the, there's the majority. And then within certain states, you know, the states, they're automatically going to ban it the moment they can. Mm-hmm. You know, you get, the numbers tick a different way, right? It could be like 52%. And, it's, and it sort of subdivides along these sort of like old partisan fault lines. Sort of. I mean, here's the thing. I'm always dubious about abortion polling because, gosh, I guess it's about 10 years ago I sort of became a lot better informed about abortion polling. Abortion polling is notoriously terrible. This is something we have to understand because there's about to be an ocean of it, and a lot of it is going to be just garbage. For years, as I was growing up and coming of age, I was told that the country was irrevocably divided on abortion, right? It was 50-50. And this is one of the reasons I think that underscore Democrat strategy, which is don't, don't hew too closely to this fight, right? Keep a distance. It's kind of icky. It's electric. It might divide people, right? Because um, all the polling was always like, it's just 50-50, 50-50. And then there was a kind of innovation, I think it was about a decade ago. And in part, it was because different people sort of became pollsters, right? And I don't want to, there's not like an essentialist thing, like women know how to poll better than men, but there were, there's a, there's a pollster named Tressa Undam who's really been helpful in, in my understanding of this. Um, and they began to poll these issues separately because always before they had just asked, do you support abortion or not? And people had said yes or no. And that's how you got to that 50-50 split. And then more sophisticated pollsters started doing it in basically two questions. The first one is, do you believe in abortion or would you have an abortion, you know, and you got that 50-50 number. And then the follow-up question would be, do you think there should be restrictions on other people's ability to get abortions? And when they polled that way, that is when they began to get these 70% who believed abortion should be legal and accessible versus the 30% who didn't, right? This is all, I'm, I'm making broad generalizations, but it's that 70-30 breakdown where they discovered that in fact majorities, even in a lot of red and purple states, a lot of them, that majorities wanted abortion to remain legal and accessible in some form. And that was, a you can see the moment where some of that polling changed, but not all pollsters are doing that, right? It is, it's just one of these issues that is incredibly difficult to poll. And I, my impulse is to not necessarily trust a lot of the polling on it, really in any direction. And to just acknowledge as you're looking at it, that we don't know who's doing these polls and how they're being conducted, because you get really varied results depending on how you ask these questions. Yeah. Well, in the way it's been framed, 
partly through the polling, mm-hmm. is that it's a culture war issue, and it has been a culture war issue. It's been the culture war issue, <laughs> you know, for decades, as we know. And it's going to break down into the same old states that went one way politically and the other way a different way. This kind of cold, it further delineates this kind of cold civil war that we're seeming to be headed into. And the politics of it are being played masterfully by the right and the left, as we talk about, is completely like, you know, head up their ass and they don't even know what mm-hmm. to say. But but I have to say, I look on television and the cable news people pick out some stock footage of, you know, the pro-life groups marching in Washington and it's a bunch of women. And I, I scratch my head and I don't understand this. What are they fighting for? What is at the heart of it? How do we understand you know, what is going on inside of this culture that we seek to speak to as either Democrats or independent-minded people who believe that abortion should be legal. Okay, well, you're going to take me way into my nerd, like, white capitalist patriarchy power structure. (laughs) I don't know if you want this. (laughs) And that's fine, but but how do you analyze those women? How do you understand them culturally? Democrats need to talk to them. Or do you? I mean, is well, are no. there? No, I mean, so I, I always believe in talking to everybody, right? But I think there are a bunch of different things in play here. The people that you see marching are in a slightly different category from the people who are legislating and manipulating the systems, mm-hmm. right? And that's important. I want to also acknowledge there is a place where there is a fundamental difference in belief, right? There are people out there who believe that abortion is murder. Okay. But then, and and that is, I think in many ways, that's a divide that is a divide that is a little bit unbridgeable. So, So there's that. But that doesn't account for the political clout of the people who don't believe that in their heart or for faith based reasons or, but who nonetheless use that rhetoric to increase their power. And that's a separate question, is how has the Republican Party leveraged the willingness to treat this as a culture war issue, which it is not, right? And and let's go back to that in a second, to gain power. And there's all kinds of good uh, journalism and writing about how, in part, the Republican Party turned to this after they realized that they were on the losing end of desegregation. And, and it, that also speaks to the degree to which this is so much about racial hierarchies, gender hierarchies, controlling the bodies and reproduction and patrolling racial boundaries, right? This is all tied up in this country's deep, deep and interconnected history of, of racism and, and sexism. And there was a strategic move. Like it wasn't, the Republican Party wasn't even, it hadn't even coalesced around an anti-abortion fight in the early 70s when Roe was passed. There were anti-abortion forces, activist groups out there, but the Republican Party wasn't keyed into them. Remember that the Bush the Bush family was huge supporters of Planned Parenthood, right? Republicans, Ronald Reagan had signed one of the most liberal abortion laws in California when he was governor there uh, in the late 60s. And then by the time he becomes the president in 1980, in part on the joined power of the sort of religious right, the growing religious right, along with economic conservatives, um, there is a right to human life plank in the Republican platform in 1980. There was a canny strategic move on the part of a Republican party to adopt 
the language and rhetoric of the kind of true believer activists and to use it as leverage to gain political might. And I think we have to understand that there are two different things here. Um, Donald Trump was a big, like, yeah. pro-choice guy. I mean, I think we can assume that Donald Trump had a pretty um, intimate relationship with abortion rights, but then was willing, like, it's a, the leverage there is very obvious because he was so open about everything. He agreed to Marjorie Dannenfelser, who's a, who's a very powerful anti-abortion activist, when he was getting the Republican nomination, he basically entered an agreement with her and promised her that he would appoint anti-abortion judges to the Supreme Court. And that's what won him the support of this right-wing faction that had been very dubious about him, in part because he had a history of mm-hmm. being openly pro, pro-choice. There I am using that language. So these are calculated moves. The, the moves of the, of the power grabbers, the politicians, are in most cases not at all tied to this chasm of belief, Right. The question of why you ha- why you see women as the active marchers, and by the way, I want to point out that this is an issue where you also see a lot of white men as the as the anti-abortion mm-hmm. activists, right? It's, sure. But but this this goes back to all kinds of questions about white women voting Republican, which they have consistently always. <laughs> um, there are power structures in this country, including you know white supremacy and patriarchy, that reward white women for supporting the way the power structures go. And and that is mm-hmm. absolutely key to understanding why white women historically vote against their their gender interests, but often on behalf of their racial interests in voting for right-wing candidates. And and to the degree that that's about explaining the psychology, it's often not, you know, it's not that human beings are doing that calculation, like, "Mm, I'll be rewarded and protected, you know, by the white men to whom I am connected familially Mm -hmm. and romantically and sexually and, and at work, if I support the, it's not like that. It's, you know, there are all kinds of cultural messages that are tied up with that, but those cultural messages get made around a fundamental unconscious understanding of where the power is and that aligning yourself and your political interests with the most powerful sector is going to benefit you in one way, even if it hurts you in another. And it's one of the reasons that a lot of what we've seen over the past few years, you've seen a lot of white women at various moments being really shaken by this, in part because there's been on view and tied to this very issue and this very outcome, a real demonstration of how when push comes to shove, they'll be thrown under the bus. And that's, you know, that's Christine Blasey Ford. It's the loss of Hillary Clinton, which shocked a lot of suburban middle-class white women. There was the the disbelief of Christine Blasey Ford, which shocked a lot of suburban middle-class white women. How could it not, you know, that, that, you know, white supremacy will take care of you when you support white patriarchy and its politics, or at least don't challenge them, right? Mm-hmm. But when push comes to shove, lady you're you're out you know and that i think has served as a real wake up call and it's it's horrific because it's that thing where you can only understand the risks and the peril if you see somebody who looks like you in the mirror you know being overridden disbelieved losing but it's been one of the powerful forces that i think has served to shake a lot of people and and i'm very interested moving forward in how that is going to play out when we are living in a nation without Roe, there's, you know, I, I, 
for very good reason, people point to the disproportionate harm done to poor communities and communities of color for the past 40 years while Roe has stood and Hyde and state restrictions have made abortion care all but inaccessible to millions of people. But white middle class women have had the access that they need by and large. And, and, and let me just stop you there because I, this is exactly to your point. I was surprised when I read this this morning that the, the data is that poor and low income women make up 75% of all those seeking to end their pregnancies. About 60% of those seeking legal abortions are black or Hispanic federal data shows. This is from the uh, New York Times. I mean, not everything they write is correct, but even if those numbers are anywhere near that, it's exactly to your point, which is that their allegiance to this, the patriarchy or to their race interests <laughs> maybe uh, trump their gender interests, uh, you know, these voters we're talking about on the right. And it, it, that racism is at the heart of some of it. And that, that class of course. Is, on, is at the heart of it. Racism and classism are at the heart of all. I mean, all of these things, you can't separate one from the other. They're all tied up together. Mm-hmm. And the incentive structure for everybody is so dependent on race and class. And I also want to say something about the figure that I knew is about one third of abortion seekers are, are black. And we spoke earlier in this conversation in a couple of instances about the ways that all of these, you can't separate abortion from all the other policies that we have mm-hmm. and that Democrats, I think, have done a piss poor job of fighting for over decades, right? Mm-hmm. And and basically have allowed the right wing to eat their lunch on. And I think that this that the figures that you just mentioned, again, are slightly different from the figures that I have in my own head, but this is certainly not my, my you know, I'm not mm-hmm. going to play a numbers game with anybody because I will lose. Yeah. But... The reproductive justice movement has argued, which is distinct from the reproductive rights movement, right? A reproductive rights movement is typically what we understand to be the sort of big repro organizations that have talked about rights and have historically often, though not always, been white-led. And the reproductive justice movement is the movement driven by women of color to point out the interconnectedness of all of these kinds of policies, right? The thing we talked about before that you can't even begin to get to a place where you're talking about choice as being only about the question of ending pregnancies, but also the the ability to have wanted pregnancies and have a kind of stability shaped by all kinds of other policies around housing, education, gun safety, criminal justice reform, and access to healthcare. We have lost so much of the social safety network, so much around welfare and unemployment, so much around affordable housing and education. Um, you know, the left has really lost a lot over the past few decades and has has done their own part in losing a lot of those things. You know, it was it was Bill Clinton who signed who who did welfare reform. Mm-hmm. And and when I say the left, I mean the Democratic Party has lost on so many of these issues. Well, when you don't have those kinds of things in place where you don't have quality, reliable access to affordable health care, to birth control, which remember has also, access to birth control has been significantly curtailed in a lot of places with the support of the Supreme Court, you know? When you don't have access to safe and affordable housing, this all plays into why you have disproportionate numbers in terms of who, who needs to avail themselves of abortion care or wants to avail themselves of abortion care to begin with.
and if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically, I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. How do you think this, the striking down of Roe v. Wade, will reverberate politically in these midterms coming up? The urgency to articulate the message that you're talking about is basically as high as it can, is ever going to be. I mean, yeah. if the Republicans get in and they have majorities in the Senate and in Congress and they continue in the direction they're going with voting rights and the rest, I mean, I don't even see how the Democrats – I mean, it, it's bleak. It's fucking bleak, you know? No, it's very bleak. And, and, and the other thing that we should point out is that if Republicans get majorities and then elect a Republican president in two years – they can also pass a federal ban. There's been this kind of like, oh, it'll just revert back to pre-Roe, um, which first of all, doesn't acknowledge the ways that it's different now. And, and we should right. talk about those actually, right? The pre-Roe vision of back alley abortions. It's been changed tremendously by the availability of medication abortions, which people should know about a safe and effective way to yeah. self-manage plan abortion B. care. Yeah. Uh, well, no, not plan B. Plan B is earlier um, it's after there's been unprotected sex and you're worried that you might be pregnant. I there's, see. there's pills that I never like to say the words out loud because I pronounce them wrong. Uh, mesoprostol yeah. and yeah. mifeprestone. Yes. Mifeprestone. But, uh, and, and I, I shouldn't laugh about it because actually they are, there are pills that you can get by mail that are safe and effective and are abortifacients. And then their effects are indistinguishable from miscarriage. And that is really important for people to know moving forward, right? A lot of the language about, oh, we're going back to pre-row. No, there's different medical availability right now. And it's mm -hmm. crucial for people to understand that. However, the other thing that's crucial to understand is that the risks in the pre-row days, much of the moral argument in part rested on the physical harm being done, women dying, right. you know, bleeding, being sterilized in bad, dangerous back alley abortions, right? So that has been changed medically. But there was also a hesitancy in the pre-Roe days to criminalize the people who were seeking abortions. That is stripped now. And so the future is the prosecution criminalization of those seeking abortions, those providing abortions, and the Texas law is a model of this, those networks who support and help people who need abortion to get right. them. This is the terrifying future. It is criminal, which is not to say that there aren't also medical risks. There will be people who do terrible things because they are terrified about what's going to happen. There will be people who harm themselves in all kinds of ways. It's not that that's off the table, but the bigger picture moving forward is about criminalization and prosecution, um, which was not part of the past. 
And there are people, of course, states are looking into all kinds of punitive and scary ways to punish those who cross state lines to get abortion care, um, which my colleague Arin Carmon has written about beautifully and chillingly at New York Magazine, to criminalize the the mailing of abortion pills, which is such going to be such a crucial way to get people the care yeah. that they seek. Um, so that's that's really part of what we're looking at. So, and that to me is the far bigger picture than the question of what's going to happen short term. Now, if Republican majorities took over and there were a Republican presidency, they could pass a federal abortion ban. You know, and I'd spent my whole life being told that that was never going to happen, but I had also I have also spent my whole life being told that Roe was never going to fall. So, the the sort of safety that people take and it's not much it's not much comfort as far as I'm concerned that this is just going to go back to a patchwork of states where some places will be legal and some places won't that's not necessarily the full future because if the Republican party gains power and of course they've taken over systems right the courts the this is what voting restrictions are about that's been a major Republican goal to roll back voting protections, which they did via the Supreme Court in 2013 in Shelby, where they gutted the Voting Rights Act. Um, you know, the desire to remake or to strengthen the mechanisms that permit minority rule that we talked about earlier, they're in place right now. So this is not an impossible future, um, even if you have a majority of American voters voting against it. But the voting is crucial. Democrats getting a much more robust and morally persuasive message is crucial. But I know Democratic leadership up until now, and they have to do this. It's, this is not some short-term win, okay? This is, yes, midterms are crucial. Every election is crucial. The party has to change the way it talks about these issues. But it has to do it over the long term and be willing to have the fight and not just do this transactional, we got to win the midterms shit, which is a constant. And it is, in fact, one of the things, since I was in my 20s, I have been writing and complain about this, this notion that when it comes to an election time, right, the party can go all, you know, big tent, we can't have litmus tests. And then when it's an election, they go and they say, you have to vote for us because we're the only ones who are going to protect your right to have an abortion. And then as soon as they get the, you know, and they sort of have people who, who believe in that by the balls, Sorry, yeah. not the right terminology, but <laughs> and 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 have used that as like as like disrespectful leverage against voters who care deeply about these issues and are committed to them. Like what else who else are we going to vote for? Republicans? And they have used that without giving the full-throated morally persuasive morally compelling argument. And so, yes, of course I, I've but who okay so who who should we look to you mentioned earlier okay. who's doing it right okay lots of people first of all I, I I would be remiss in not saying that there have been people doing it right within the Democratic Party for years and I, I wrote in my column this week about 2011 speeches that I remember that actually just shook me deeply Gwen Moore from Wisconsin this was on the house in one of the one of the sessions where again the Tea Party was trying to defund Planned Parenthood Gwen Moore um, congresswoman from Wisconsin um, who had been on her way to college when she became pregnant in 1970, uh, you know, uh, unintentionally and had to have the baby at 18 and gave a speech on the floor of the house about not having a dime to put in the payphone to call the ambulance when she went into labor. And, you know, she had three children and talked about, you know, feeding them ramen at the end of the month because she was on welfare benefits that were so meager that she had to stop the, 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 
they were crying because their bellies were full. This is exactly what we're talking about, is making the connections and the and painting a picture, a human picture of what it looks like to not have all of these policy supports in place. Mm-hmm. And her colleague in that same session, Jackie Spear, a congresswoman from California, spoke about the abortion that she had to have when a, a wanted pregnancy went wrong at 17 weeks. That stuff was so moving and it went viral. People responded to it. They called the offices crying, but the party at large didn't take the virality of those speeches, the way that people responded to them, and understand that they could move forward as a as a party by broadcasting these messages, by painting these pictures of what actual human familial life is like. And, and so people have been saying it within the party. Other politicians have told the stories of their abortions. In this past week, I've seen people, Katie Porter, immediately that night, I was watching the people who the night of the leaked draft were out there talking about this Pramila Jaipal talked about the abortion that she had. Katie Porter talked about having been a single mother. Bernie Sanders got out there, immediately called for the codification of Roe um, legislatively, which is a difficult prospect, but is absolutely the, the right call, the moral call to make. Elizabeth Warren has been raging um, on the streets of Washington and pointing out contra um, you know, Pelosi and Schumer, that this is not about the party of Trump. This is something the Republican Party has been conspiring to do for 40 years. You have people, Ayanna Presley, and it, it's not just about age. Again, I mentioned Bernie and Warren, but also a new generation, younger people who think about and talk about these issues with a different kind of passion and moral energy. But the leadership has to give way to that. And not just as a short-term electoral fix. Yeah. And and I mean, the the horror of this is that that kind of moral conversation is going to be forced because we're about to enter an era that none of us That's right. can imagine. Yeah. And those stories aren't, they're not gonna be, they're not gonna be rare. Yeah. Unfortunately, I mean, tragically, maddeningly. I don't know that any of us is remotely prepared, in part because these kinds of fights have been downplayed. And those of us who've been raging about them have been told that we were hysterical or overdramatic or overstating things, right? Everything was going to be fine. Roe's going to stand. Like, they're not really going to overturn it. All of these sort of calm down messages have been so oppressive throughout my life. And in part, among many other things, like leading us in part to lose this fight. Yeah. I think when we're talking about it over the long term, there was a failure of imagination to believe that progress could be re-engineered back to hmm. the past. You know, that, 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 that we were headed in some inexorable, you know, it, it kind of shadows what people thought about globalization and all the things that we're seeing breaking down right now, is that we thought that it was not going to end. And understand that that belief that progress couldn't be reversed was a belief that only could be held if you were member of a privileged yeah. white mm-hmm. class. Because, you know, this, is, this goes back to like the shock that some people felt when Donald Trump was elected. And if you look at, and that shock was felt by middle class white communities, it was certainly not felt in black and brown communities that new, right? It's like the shock, this is, you can see the sort of, the ease with which the ruling class, which is a, you know, a white, comparatively privileged, and and still relatively patriarchal class, 
could pat itself on the back after the victory of Barack Obama and feel like racism had been solved, right? Like, fixed it. Look, we elected a black president. And not be able to look two seconds in front of that moment and understand the depth of the racist backlash, the the party that could assume that Hillary Clinton, and I went through two elections hearing that Hillary Clinton was inevitably, that that word was used all the time. She was inevitably going to be the candidate in 2008, and she was inevitably, and I was told that through the summer of 2016. Of course, Hillary Clinton was going to win. The only people who were in deep denial about the structural racism and misogyny around which this country has been built could believe that progress only moved in one direction. Mm -hmm. That is the group that has been in charge of our media, our politics, to be able to spread that message. Don't worry, only up and forward. And to actually not be able to look at the present moment and understand how wrong it was. Yeah, well, the laziness of it, the narcissism of it, and and, and to your point, it it was, it helped them pat themselves on the back for decades. And it's sort of like, actually, it it reminds me of the OK Boomer kind of uh, meme because it's a boomer sense of history that has turned out to be tragically, horribly wrong that we're seeing kind of destroyed. And and the generation that's coming up is now our hope, as you're saying, because they see reality as it is. You know, they've watched it be dismantled right in front of their eyes as they're coming into their adulthoods and as they're coming into their own agency over their lives. And so I do think going into next couple of elections, this issue, it's not in isolation, as you pointed out. It's the hub to a whole kind of worldview about how we take care of families and how we take care of life, how we really take care of life, how we really take care of babies, how we really take care of children and the elderly and our people, right? right? Not leaving them out on their own to not be able to direct whether they're going to have a baby or not. And then when they have babies, I mean, I was just reading this article in the Times today about an abortion clinic in McAllen, Texas on the border, and a woman comes in. She's saying, if I have one more baby, I can't survive. I've got a husband in prison, and this is where you're going to leave me. And she doesn't. she's not going to have health care. She's not going to have support in any other aspect of her life. So you leave them to suffer right? You leave people to suffer. And it's just, and those stories need to be surfaced, right? Those are the stories that need to come up. So, and that you you get to exactly, because those stories have been playing out while Roe has stood for the past 40 years because of the Hyde Amendment, because of state restrictions. And because those because those restrictions and that inaccessibility has fallen mostly on poor black, brown, immigrant populations. It has not been visible to that more comfortable, more predominantly white class that tells the stories in politics or in media. Those stories of exactly like the the story you read about from McAllen, Texas, they have been happening this whole time. And nobody has been telling them, oh no, that's not true. Nobody with power in party or in media has been focused on them as the central moral argument. Mm -hmm. We have lost the history of the generations of people and their experiences before abortion and birth control was readily available. 
we left a lot of that history behind. And with it, unfortunately, we also left the history of how long these reforms took to generations, centuries to get these protections. And we haven't even talked about the fact that birth control itself is very likely on the table. It's it's literally on the table in states like Missouri, where where the the sort of trigger laws already say that life begins at conception. So IUDs will be illegal when Roe falls in certain states, right? That's that's on the books in Missouri. We forget that, you know, the the Supreme Court only decided that birth control for married people in Griswold v. Connecticut was legal in the 60s and that birth control for single people was a decision, as, as legal, was a decision made by the Supreme Court in 1972, just the year before Roe, in Eisenstadt v. Baird. So, I mean, there's this assumption that all these things can't go, but, you know, in the weeks of the Katanji Brown-Jackson confirmation hearings, one senator had Griswold in her mouth, right? She, Marsh Blackburn, was talking about Griswold in, a, in an interview, which is the the birth control decision. And Mike Braun, another senator, was talking about Loving v. Virginia, which is the Supreme Court decision on interracial marriage. There is a host of rollbacks that are ahead of us or that could be ahead of us. And I think that all of these decades in which a comfortable class of power has assured us that none of these terrible things could happen as my as my friend and colleague Arin Carmon said the other day like the sky has fallen and and it can fall more I typically look for silver linings and I don't want to sound naive but my one hope is that out of the fire of this burning building, we get some new heroes in our electoral politics, in the activism world, that people become more focused and that these old kind of lazy ways of thinking that things are going to work themselves out on their own, it will be finally be melted away to reveal the fight that's in front of us and that has to be fought. Joe, I think you're right about that. That will surely happen. That will happen over decades and generations of people who are going to be fighting to fix this, but in the interim, dot, dot, dot. There are millions of people, millions of people who have already suffered and so many more who yeah. are about to. And I, I, I don't want to take that trade. We're going to, yeah. but the, the, the fire which will forge a new kind of fight is, is going to engulf too many millions of other a people. lot of suffering yes i just want to end on a uh on a comment here which is that you and i are roughly the same age and this conversation has been going on our entire adult lives in college it was you know a rallying cry for young feminists that pro-choice was it's always been here as a conversation in the in the kind of fascinating thing about it is as the danger has risen, it seems like it's become less influential, even as the danger of it became more real. Mm-hmm. I think that back when we, you and I were in college, we were more exposed to the generation that had fought for it and that it was really hot on the plate for them and that we were absorbing those lessons. And somehow 
we lost the thread. You know, my one of my first experiences in journalism was transcribing some interviews for, you know, as a fact checker, I was transcribing some interviews, and it was interviews with some anti-abortion radicals who who had put up a website of all the all of all the medical doctors who did abortions and were sort of as a kind of prompt to go murder them. Right. And, that, and that when they were murdered, they would cross their lot names out on the website. It was called the Nuremberg Files. And they would harbor fugitive killers. It was like a whole network of maniacs. And the writer got in deeply into their lives. And you saw very clearly how putting the lives of these sort of magical fetuses above the lives of actual hu living human beings, how it happened, how this mm -hmm. fantasy sort of evolved to really, which was a way to repair their own broken lives. Mm. And at the time, it seemed like very much on the margins. It seemed like these people are nut jobs living in the sticks who, you know, we don't have to worry about them. But, you know, in the 20 years since I transcribed that interview, that concept of fantasy and narcissism eclipsing reality has basically engulfed the entire country. And this issue... And this is, and this is the, the outcome of it, the outcome of weaponizing that kind of fantasy thinking. And as you say, the consequences are not just in our politics, it's in the suffering of all these people. And we're going to be hearing more about them, and I hope we do. And we, need, and we need to think about why all of those stories were downplayed. Over the years that Roe has stood, there have been abortion clinic bombings. There have been providers who have been murdered, George Tiller murdered in his place of worship. You know, there was a mass shooting at a Planned Parenthood clinic just a few that. years ago. Yeah. And yet, if we think about how the, the media and, you know, in many cases, politicians have continued to treat this as if it were a settled issue that was not in danger. It's, I mean, it is, it, think about what forces, it's not just coincidence that we were taught, that we were encouraged not to focus on this as a real risk. This has been... Listen, this is hard. We've just spent an hour talking about it, and I'm already going to have to spend the next 24 hours on my rest bed just trying to like uh, <laughs> recover from the emotional yeah. intensity. But um, Rebecca Traster, uh, we're going to be having you back again, I'm sure. I couldn't think of anybody smarter and more passionate to have on this week to talk about this. And actually just talking to you, even though it's been difficult to face all these realities, this is the first step. You know, we have to know what the road looks like and see clearly in front of us. And you're a clear sighted person. And I really appreciate you coming on Inside the Hive. Thanks so much for having me. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.